Welcome to Walter Edgar's Journal. Today we'll be continuing our conversations on the Civil War 1865, and we'll be talking with Professor Heather Williams of the University of Pennsylvania about emancipation and the agency that persons of color had in the South prior to emancipation and afterwards. Our guest tonight is Professor Heather Andrea Williams from the University of Pennsylvania, where she is a presidential professor. Professor Williams taught for a number of years at Chapel Hill before going to Penn this past summer. She's author of two books, Self-Taught, African-American Education in Slavery and Freedom, and Help Me to Find My People, The African-American Search for Family Lost in Slavery. And she's been a winner of any number of fellowships from the Mellon Foundation, the Ford Foundation, and she's a delightful conversationalist. We welcome her to a little bit chilly south tonight <laughs> to talk about her book and also about what emancipation really meant in the 19th century. So, Professor Williams, welcome. Thank you. <laughs> you obviously talk in your book about emancipation, but you use another term, agency. What do you mean by agency? It's usually used about people who we think have no power at all, who are totally controlled and dominated by others who have power. And so agency says that even when you're owned by someone, even when you can be sold by someone, you still have thoughts, you still act. And so your action could be just cooking a meal that you like, or it, you know, there's a spectrum of agency. But it means that these are people who act, who think, who have desires, and who act on those desires, which is in contrast to the way that they're often, or were often, portrayed. There are a number of cases that you cite in your book where you have enslaved persons, particularly those who are in the house, listening to what is being said and then relating that news, in essence, on the street, in the yard, in the quarters. Right. So my first book is called Self-Taught, and it's about African-American education during slavery and freedom. I started thinking about people at the moment of emancipation and realized I had to go back into slavery to find out who those people were, how they came to be. Almost all Southern states prohibited, legally prohibited enslaved people from learning to read and write. And some states said it was illegal for any black person or any person of mixed race, any mestizo, mulatto, to learn to read and write. And so those pe the people who were learning were punished and the people who tried to teach them were punished, whether those people were white or black who were trying to teach them. And so many people, most people did not become literate. So I'm making a, a, a case, I'm showing, I have evidence that shows that despite those laws, some people did manage to acquire literacy. But I also want to say that even when you could not, when you were illiterate, you could still act. And so they wanted to have news. And so some people were able, were literate enough to read a newspaper. They, the men often were the ones sent to the post office to pick up the papers and the mail. And so perhaps somebody could decode it, was literate enough to do that. But then there were other people who, as you said, worked in the house. And as they're serving whatever people were drinking on a summer evening, they're eavesdropping. And so I talk about eavesdropping as another way of acquiring knowledge, that all knowledge was not in, you know, in, in books and in newspapers. And so they eavesdropped. And I even found evidence of a, a young boy who could not read, and the owners suspected that he might be eavesdropping, and so would spell out when they, they were talking about the war. And so they'd get to a critical moment, just as people might do who are parents who don't want their child to know what they're talking about. And they would spell out certain words. And he had 
acquired the skill or developed the skill of memorization. And so he would memorize the spelling and then go back to the quarters and repeat the spelling to somebody who was literate, who could th then decode that. So people, had, people developed all kinds of ways of surviving and undermining um, owners and the, the institution of slavery. When you, you mentioned that case, I went back to how you came about to write this book, your initial frustrations with research and having something of, was it an epiphany? Was it a fit of anger? Uh, a moment of insanity. <laughs> <laughs> when you said, where are the black people? And this isn't a traditional archives. Yeah. So I was in graduate school. I did my PhD at Yale and came to the topic in a course that was being taught by John Blassingame, who some people may know, African-American professor who wrote one of the first books that put black people at the center of the story about slave, slave community. Slave community. And I read a book in his class in which the author argued that after the Civil War, black people needed lots of things. Former slaves needed land, they needed political power, they needed the vote, they needed um, to be able to serve on juries. Instead of political power and land, he said, whites from the North brought education and they sent these teachers, and that was the least of what the, they needed. The, the traditional school marm who came down exactly. to, to Port Royal, what have you. Right, and indeed, teachers did come. But when I read, it, it sounded as though he was saying this was, n I wanted to know where education rested on the list of priorities that African Americans had as they emerged from slavery. So as I said, I started after slavery and then realized I had to go back. I wanted to know, I didn't know, I wanted to know if they thought that education was important or if it was way down on their list. And so I started to do research and my interest, it was a developing interest at the time and it's now the prevailing interest is I center black people, I wanna know about them. Lots of people are writing about white people and even as I write about African Americans, whites are always there. They're always in the picture, but where are the black people? And so I was looking in, um, I was doing research looking at military records of the Civil War, looking at correspondence back and forth, um, and Freedmen's Bureau records. And all I was finding was about whites and about white missionaries. And people are talking about black people. People are always talking about the slaves and the former slaves, but I wanted to have them speak. I wanted to hear them speak. And so there was this day, and I remember it so clearly. I had gone to lunch, and I came back, and I was walking around the library saying, where are the black people? Where are the black people? I have to find the black people. And that day, because of that determination, I came across a book that is a bibliography of black autobiography, which is a lot to say. But somebody had gone through. People make contributions in so many ways. This is not a way I can imagine contributing. But this person had gone and found autobiographies that were written by African Americans in the 19th and early 20th century and just listed the books and gave a little bit of information about the authors. And so I started looking through that to find people who would have lived through slavery and through those first years of freedom. And that day I found a man named Elijah Mars who was from Kentucky and grew up on a, a farm, he called it, became literate as a child, kind of stole an education as many of these people did, you know, kind of taught himself, bribed people. An old man on the farm taught him a little bit. He became what he called the Negro scribe on the plantation. So he would write on the farm, he would write letters for other people and sneak them out. Or he would read letters that came in from other people. And during the Civil War, he, and he led 25 other men out of slavery. They escaped and joined the Union Army. He taught classes while he was in the military. 
he mustered out and wanted to start a business. Actually, he and his brother started a business, but the people in the community said, no, we need you to teach. Because anybody who was capable of teaching was called into service. That was something that you had to do. And what I found is that men like Mars taught, he kept teaching until about 1903, but others taught and then they started to write letters north to the Northern Aid Associations and the Missionary Society saying, we've used up all our knowledge. We are self-taught. The students, both adults and children, are learning so fast. We've taught them everything we know. Can you please send some teachers who've been trained as teachers? And that's when the, the white, mostly women, came, and some African Americans as well. Um, came to, to bring teaching. But again, the point is centering black people. And I tell my students, you know, when you're doing research, you may start out saying, I want to do, especially in the 19th century, and it gets harder the farther back you go. You go. But you start out saying, I want to know about these black people, these African Americans, but they're very hard to find. And so then you end up writing about, I don't know, the governor of the state or the plantation owner, the people who left huge archives, much easier to write about them. And so you have to really focus and you have to start to learn how to find them in little scraps of paper and little mentions and to, to try to find their writings and, and what they had to say. As Darlene Clark Hahn says, you have to listen for the silences. Yes, well, you've got to listen for silences and there are lots of silences. But I think that um, sometimes it's easy to say it's just silent. I've been reading, I'm teaching this week a book by um, Stephanie, what is her name? I can't remember her last name, but it's called Saltwater Slavery. And it's really about the Middle Passage, so that movement of Africans from the Gold Coast of Africa to the Americas. And sometimes you can, her, her frustration is just palpable because she starts a chapter and she wants to talk about the captives on the ship. She's able to talk about the captain. She's able to talk somewhat about the crew. But when she gets into the hold of the ship and she wants to talk about those captives and about what they were experiencing and what they were feeling, it gets very, very difficult because so few of them left anything. So even though I may feel deprived in the 19th century, she's writing about the 1600s, the 17th century, and about people who were captives, who were not walking around with notebooks, were not leaving notes for us. And so it gets very, very difficult to find that material. But if you make it a priority, I think you can, and you, you can find ways around it. Well, in your bibliography, among the things you did, of course, were the slave so-called slave narratives that were done during the WPA. And they're particularly rich in terms, of, in terms of the Carolinas. And for those of you who may not realize, is that all of the WPA records that were done in South Carolina, not just the slave narratives, but things that were never published fill a whole rank of file cabinets in the South Carolina Library here. Uh -huh. And they did lots of interviews with persons of color and also with yeoman farmers, with mill workers that have never been published. Mm -hmm. Family tales, lore, it's all there. But the slave narratives, you tease those to get a good bit of information. Mm -hmm. So there, Two things that we call narratives, they're the big narratives that people wrote, Frederick Douglass, um, mm -hmm. you know, just lots of them. There are over 100 of them that are many pages long, where it's an autobiography. And then there are these interviews that were done in the 30s and 40s, 1930s and 40s, as part of getting people back to work during the Great Depression. And they went out and interviewed hundreds of people who had been enslaved. Many of them were, were children during slavery, because you can imagine, slavery ended officially, 1865. And so they'd been enslaved before that, and now it's possibly 1946. So some of them had been very young. Many of them were very old. I've cited people who are a woman who was 100 years old, 101 years old. And so they tell stories about childhood. Many times the interviewers were very interested in folklore, 
What kinds of songs did you sing? What kinds of stories did they tell? But for the second book especially, Help Me to Find My People, which is about people being separated from, from each other, forced separations during slavery and then trying to find each other after the war, they, I, I call them genealogies. They're, they're telling us about their families. So even when the interviewer did not seem to ask about, tell me about your grandmother, the person weaves that into the story. Um, my mother was sold, and I went with her, but my father didn't, and I never saw my father again, and that kind of thing. And so they're really, really rich sources if you respect them and pay close attention to them. Well, let, let's get back to your, your, your question of, of education and the emancipation. I, let, I, I want to talk about the emancipation a little bit because there's so many perceptions, misconceptions, in your view, what did the Emancipation Proclamation mean, and how do you interpret enslaved, then enslaved persons still reacting to the, to the news, because they did get the news? Right, so the, the actual document, when you read it, is pretty limited in who it was freeing. It's freeing people who were within rebel control. I, I, I think that may be the language that's used, and so, the federal government was not able to enforce, I mean, if it's under the control of the Confederate Army, then you're not able to enforce this Emancipation Proclamation. However, African Americans did hear about it. It was read in many, read aloud in many places, in churches, under trees, wherever people gathered. And people took it as a, a sign that this thing was gonna be over. And really, even before that, um, you'd had people escaping if, if Union troops were anywhere nearby. And so people started to free themselves. And one of the very important things about the Emancipation Proclamation was that it then enabled African-American men, enslaved men, to enlist in the military. So enslaved men, free men, if you were from New York or Pennsylvania or South Carolina or wherever, if you could get to enlist. So as Elijah Mars, who I talked about, was able to escape and they, they moved through the night because if they, they were slaves, they belonged to somebody. And, and, and when you mentioned emancipation, the emancipation did not affect Kentucky. Right, yeah. Or Maryland, right. or Delaware. Those, those border states that had remained in the Union, the emancipation did not free the slaves in those right. states. And one of the most shocking things that I came across when I was researching that first book was I was at the National Archives looking through the military service record of Elijah Mars. And I had come to know him through his autobiography and through records of his teaching and lots of information about this man. And then I came to a, a filing by his former owner who was petitioning the federal, the, the federal government to pay, to compensate him for the loss of Elijah Mars because Lincoln had said, if you are loyal, if you're a loyal state, if you're loyal to the Union and your slaves enlist, we will compensate you. So this will be compensated emancipation. And so it was jarring to me because, as I said, I had come to know him as this man who leads other men. He becomes a sergeant in the army. But even after that, after the war, his former owner filed this claim. And I could never find that he, he was compensated. I think most people were not. I saw some records of some compensation, but not for Mars. And so, yeah, Kentucky was not covered by it. So a lot of enslaved people, most enslaved people, were not covered by the Emancipation Proclamation, but they didn't let that stop them from trying to get to freedom. And you know, in, in self-taught, I talk about freedom being a place, <laughs> that you had to get to this place to be free, that you had to get to the Union camp, you had to get to, and you had to get to the fort to enlist. You had to go somewhere to acquire freedom during this time period. It's not after the Thirteenth Amendment, or even really just after the end of the war. Wherever you are now, you're you're supposed to be free. In some of the slave narratives from South Carolina 
particularly those I remember from some, ex now they were freed women, they left town, they may come back, but they, they physically felt they had to go away in order to be free. It was, I guess, a psychological thing. They just couldn't say you're free. They physically felt they had to go somewhere else. Right. And at one point, you had to go somewhere else to get to a place where you were free. Or contraband, you know, you're a contraband of war, um, meaning that you are now seized by the government at, because you're the property of the enemy. So you're not free, you're in this limbo status, and that's during the war. But then, yeah, you're talking about, I mean, people tried all kinds of ways to figure out how to be free and what freedom meant. And how do you feel free? What, what does it, you know, um, Nell Painter in this um, documentary says, what does this mean? Am I going to be white now? Because that's, that's who I know who's, who's free. You know, what does it mean? And, how, and the question that I think goes through self-taught is how do I make, how do we make freedom meaningful. You know, I, I find conversations among these in, uh, former slaves, their contrabands really, in Virginia during the war. And they're saying, okay, we've been working for the government, the federal government, but we're not getting paid. They're not treating us well. We will never be treated well in America. Should we move to Haiti? You know, so they're having these, these conversations about emigration. Should they leave? Do they have to leave this country to be free, to be really free? And how are you going to make this meaningful? They, they're advocating after the war, Elijah Mars, many other people, for all those rights that that um, author talked about. You know, they want to be able to serve on juries because they say white men come into our communities and they assault us and kill us with impunity because we're not allowed to serve on juries. We're not allowed to testify against whites. We need to be able, uh, how do we fight back legally? And so they're advocating for all these kinds of rights because now you say I'm free, but what is freedom? What does it mean if there's nothing to back well, it up? And so what you're talking about is really after the war, the black codes that were adopted in yeah. most of the former Confederate right. states, including here in, in South Carolina. Right. The Constitution of 1868 in this state had twin pillars, at least that's the way it was described by people like Robert Smalls. One was public education. Mm -hmm. Education was enshrined into the Constitution of 1868, and the other was public equality, which is what you're talking about. And they were very careful to differentiate. No social equality. Not social equality. Right. They wanted the right to vote. They wanted to serve on juries. They wanted access to public accommodations. And that was what they did put into the Constitution of 1868. Of course, things changed. But right. ironically, of course, by making public education part of the South Carolina Constitution, for the first time, a majority of white children were able to go to school. Exactly. White children didn't go to school in antebellum South Carolina unless you had money. And in most of the antebellum South, right? If you were very, 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 very poor, they might take up a collection and bring in a teacher for a month or two. Mm. Um, and if you were wealthy, then you brought in teachers from the North, some plantations had schoolhouses built on, I mean, I've seen these schoolhouses. Booker T. Washington talks about walking to the schoolhouse with the owner's children. He had to carry their lunch for them and he had to walk them there. And he would peek inside and he said, I just would have thought I'd died and gone to heaven if I could have sat in that classroom for a day. Of course, he ends up founding a university <laughs> after the war. but. Yeah, so wealthy whites sent their children away to school. I'm teaching a, a course next year called Penn and Slavery because I'm curious about Penn was educating sons of planters, you know, who's supporting these institutions. Um, they sent them to Europe, uh, mostly in the beginning the boys and then the, the daughters also got to go to school. So it's not until North Carolina had a public education system starting in the 1830s maybe, but it's not until after the Civil War, not until these new constitutions that you get any kind of public education system. And in some states, Mississippi, you know, you have these hearings that where I found just a wealth of, of sources of evidence about 
people being beaten up because they were trying to teach. So black teachers, white teachers were often threatened. Um, they did not want public schools because public schools meant you're going to have to be taxed. Whether you have children or not, you're, there's going to be a tax. And of course, some of these people had land but didn't have money, didn't have cash money to pay taxes. And so they were opposed to public education, even if it meant that their children would get access to it. It's a real struggle. One thing that under the 1868 Constitution, until the 1880s, in this state, believe it or not, it wasn't much money, but every, the amount of money spent per child, black child or white child, was exactly the same. Now, it wasn't much, but until the 1880s, that actually, that actually was, was the case. Right after the war, or certainly 1868, for almost 20 years, the funding, it was pitiful. They didn't, the state didn't have much money, but it was, they were funded per pupil pretty much on, on par, and there were far more black children, of course, than there were white children. Right, but I'm, I'm not sure if it's ironic, because I think that this is a time when you have black people and you've got um, Republicans from the North, you know, you've got a different constellation, right? Uh, you're, you're, yeah. well, well, you're, you're right there. You, people have agency, and this is an overwhelmingly black majority state. Right. What happened in the 1880s is beginning yeah. in, in 1882 and 1884, there's a, through things like the eight box ballot law, which try to disenfranchise illiterate persons. Ingenious folks, you have eight, you have eight offices you're voting for in South Carolina. Each one has a label, governor, lieutenant governor, what have you. And an illiterate person comes in, well, you might tell them the order. Well, the poll managers start shifting the boxes. Mm. So if you're voting for somebody, you think for governor and put it in the attorney general slot, well, your ballot's thrown out. A loss of agency is what is what we're talking because blacks were sitting on juries, blacks were in the militia, they were in the general assembly, they were representing South Carolina right, Congress. Right. And Reconstruction may have ended officially in 1877, but black office holding and so forth did not end until mm -hmm. uh, the 1890s. Yeah. And that's, yeah, and W.B. Du Bois has a book called, um, he did a study of the Negro Common School and published at the turn of the century where he, I, I don't know the figures for the particular states, but as you say, white schools are getting the vast majority of the funding and not just for books and the actual schoolhouse. In fact, many of those schools, the black schools were being held in the buildings that that former slaves had built right after the war, even going into the 20th century. But also teachers were being paid a lot less. And so you get public school system separate almost all the way in New Orleans. There was a moment when there was some integration, but not only separate, but very, very unequal. And of course, that's what takes us up to 1954 in the Supreme Court case of Brown v. Board of Education. And I'll mention Lemon Swamp and All the Stories. It's one of my favorite books, mm -hmm. Mamie Garvin Fields. She was a school teacher on, on the islands outside of Charleston, and she talks about there was no blackboard, so she was able to put together, she had cardboard which they could write, write chalk on, and uh, no books. Yeah. It was a it was like many school districts in South Carolina, ladies and gentlemen, it was a one school district. We had a thousand school districts in 1950 in South Carolina. A thousand. Many of them, particularly African American, one school. And of course, the school board was white. Mm -hmm. yeah. And Du Bois talks about a double tax because the black people have to pay tax that you pay that's going to go to schools and then they have to bring in material so that you have to furnish the school, you have to make sure you buy books and that kind of thing. Supplement the, the teacher's income. If you want your children to have an education, you've got to pay for it twice. So. Well, Elijah Morris has got you started on this. I'd I'm really fascinated. I think our folks out here would like to know a little bit more about it. Did he go back to Kentucky? He stayed in Kentucky. Um, after the war, he taught, and I have his 
records from the school board up into, I think, 1903, 1904 is when he retired. He kept teaching. He tell he gives he he was not just a teacher he was a teacher in the classroom but he was also an advocate and his brother same thing any of these men who came out of slavery and it was mostly men who i saw as public figures who came out into the public and advocated on behalf of their communities mostly men really all men except for one woman advocating for you talked about public accommodations. He says, you know, the hotels won't let us stay there, but we don't have the right to, they won't let us open our own hotels. So these are people who want to start businesses, but they're not allowed to. Um, and, and whether legally or extra legally. <laughs> um, and so they're, they're trying to get access to the things that they think, to civil rights, mm -hmm. uh, which we usually think of in the 60s, the 50s and 60s, but in, in the 1860s and 70s, that's what they're advocating for, mm -hmm. these rights that we all take for granted. Mm -hmm. And so he played that role, but he also taught, he, he tells of an incident where his his, children, his students were out on the playground and Klan members came and fired into the, the crowd of children playing. Fortunately, um, nobody was hurt, but that that's, you know, there's always this challenge. How dare you think you can teach? How dare you think you can go to school? Because this, um, <laughs> I talk a lot in the book about how Black people going to school in public, in the open, black children walking around on the street reading books, really upset a lot of whites in the South um, because it threatened to just upend the whole belief system that they had grown up with, you know, that we are superior and you are inferior. Not only can't, aren't you, you're not allowed to do this, but you really can't do it. You don't have the, the mental capacity to do it. And then you see, you're walking by and you're hearing children reading in a classroom. And it was very, very upsetting. And some people just kind of wailed about it in the newspapers. Other people acted out violently. I mean, there's lots and lots of violence in that book. Well, in South Carolina, despite the law, mm -hmm. there were schools operated in Charleston by religious groups, mm -hmm. Columbia. They called them Sunday schools. And Sunday schools in those days were not just going to church to get a little bit of Bible, they were operated by churches, especially the Episcopal, Presbyterian, and Methodist churches in, in Columbia for the poor of the community. But you can go look at the records and they'll say we have 40 white scholars and we've got 32 black scholars. Mm -hmm. And they actually use that term. And we've seen the curriculum, so obviously they are doing more than just rote. I mean, it, it's against the law. Mm -hmm. But we've got petitions from Baptist congregations where individual knowledge of the scripture is essential and they're petitioning for permission to teach black people mm -hmm. to read and write yeah. so they can be saved. Yeah, and, and I mean, I talk about in the book about white women, slave owners who thought that everybody should have, should have access to the Bible, to the word of God. Everybody should be able to read it. And so that's how some people got their first lessons was through a slave mistress. But you might have a plantation with 200 people or 400 people, and maybe two or three would get access to that, or one or two. Um, so th there are always these exceptions. But what happens is you, know, you, you think you're going to teach somebody to read so that the person can read the Bible. Well, guess what? <laughs> um, you learn how to read, you learn how to read anything. And you also read the Bible and interpret it in a way that is that makes more sense for your situation. Um, lots of people said, we want, I wanted to learn how to read because I could not believe that that minister came every week, and in that whole big book, all that it said in there was, servants, obey your masters. I want to know what else is in there. And when they read it, they see messages of the talk about equality and of all, all men being made of one blood and, and you know, those kinds of, of arguments. And that's what they adopt. Yes, if you look at 
after Denmark Vesey and in Charleston when they don't want black churches to exist, the AME church is destroyed. And there's supposed to be a white person present if there's a black congregation. And it's all New Testament. It's all Paul. You don't find anybody referring to Exodus. (laughs) (laughs) But then if you look at the black folk songs of South Carolina, where do you get things like Michael Rode the Boat Ashore or Let My People Go, mm-hmm. Go Down Moses? Somebody knew something. As you said, they had an agency. And they saw themselves in the place of the Israelites. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I want to go back before the war again because that's the part of your research that just fascinated me, which you were able to pull out. You taught a course at Chapel Hill and you called it the South Carolina case. What was that about? Yeah, it's called um, Slavery in Place, the South Carolina case, and I did not mean to make it rhyme, but the origins of the course actually are here at USC, um, because I think in my second year at UNC, I went with a colleague who teaches here at UNC on a civil rights bus tour that, I don't know if it still happens here, but basically somebody had this idea and took students to civil rights sites in, um, I think we went to Atlanta, Birmingham, Selma, and There was no teaching component to it, though. We went to all these sites, but the students had no way of processing it, or there was nobody enabling that. And so my colleague and I decided that first night, okay, we're teachers, we're going to teach. And so on the bus, we would have these classes that said, here are some things to think about when you go into this museum. And now that you've seen it, let's talk about what you've seen. And that implanted in my head the idea of doing a similar course, but about slavery, because that's what I study. Um, Also at the time, USC had a Maymester, which was three weeks in May, where it's an intensive course. Each day is the equivalent of a week. And I thought, okay, UNC, come on. And eventually we got it, and I proposed this course. So for the first two weeks, we were on campus. We did research in the um, Southern Historical Collection and all kinds of um, microfilm archives. We read about slavery in South Carolina. We would look at, at newspapers, figure out what's going on, and then In that third week, we'd get on a bus, 6 o'clock in the morning, Monday, and go to Charleston. And we went to several plantations. I mean, Charleston, frankly, when I first went to Charleston, I really did not like it. I thought, this is a place where there's so much history of African Americans, where so many people were sold here. People were scattered to the wind from this place. But you can drive around as a white person in a carriage and point and say, oh, that's where they used to sell the slaves. And that's it. That's the only mention of it. I found it abominable when I first went there. But then when I adopted it as a classroom, it became this rich space where I could take my students. We could go to Middleton Place. I I can't even remember all the names. I haven't taught it in a couple of years now. Um, We went to Fort Sumter. We went to the Aiken Rett House, so that what we had been studying, in a sense, became alive for us. Um, We could see, when I went to the Aiken Rett House, I don't know if people have been there, but there's the the huge house. I mean, and it really is big, Mm -hmm. it's impressive, and it's right in, in town. And, I mean, the piazza is huge. It's an amazing place. And then you go out into the back and you've got slave quarters and they're urban. I mean, I had never seen urban slave quarters. It's almost like a dorm, you know, Um, and a family would be in one of these rooms. And then you've got the carriage house and, and all that. And so the students get to see. And one of the great things about Aiken Rett is that they have preserved it. They have not gone and brought it up to date or taken it back to one time period. And so as you walk through it, you're going through different periods of time. There's no electricity, but then there's gas, and then there's electricity. And so you see the layers and the layers of paint and all that. And you see the stark contrast. You see that there. You see that at Middleton Place. I can't remember all the places. 
But it's a really phenomenal experience. Um, there's a plantation on, I think it's on James Island, that, again, my colleague from USC and I kind of trespassed onto. It was posted, do not enter, do not enter, and we went, because I had heard about it, and it felt as though the people had just gotten up one day and left. The white people left, the black people left, and nobody ever came back. That's how it felt. And it was a really powerful, poignant experience. And so I contacted the person who was in charge, and he allowed my students to go, and he did a little tour, and that was very powerful. Well, it had just recently been purchased by the county, and so the following year when we went, he was talking about all the changes they were going to make and restoration and they're shoring up this building and that building and they're going to pave over there so there's a parking lot. There will be weddings over there. And I was very, very saddened by this. And so that night when we went back, we stayed at College of Charleston in the dorms and we went at night we would have our meetings to process what we had seen. And so I said, you know, I, I wish they would, I almost wish they would, they had just let it decline, continue to decline so that we could go and find it the way that I had seen it the first time I saw it. And one of my students is this young white man and I had taught him by then in two courses. And he looked at me and he said, after all the time that we've spent together, I can't believe you would say that. I can't believe that you would deprive my children and my grandchildren of this place because that's what's going to happen. And it was really a very powerful, meaningful session because we were debating what to do with these um, relics from the past. Do you rebuild them? Do you shore them up so that in 100 years they're still standing? Or do you let a few people over the next 50 years come and see it as it as close to what it had been. Professor Williams, that's been the argument of historic preservationists yeah, ever since exactly, the movement. Exactly, exactly. Uh, and that's, uh, that's the thing, is that I don't teach historic preservation, but the students get engaged in that way. And because they're there seeing it, we get to have these conversations, and it means something to them. And actually, it's been going on for millennia, because in, in ancient Greece, they were constantly replacing the Argonauts. And of course, they didn't have wood preservatives, so as, as, a, as a timber would go, they would replace it. And after a while, they realized there was not a single original timber in the Argo. Mm -hmm. But everybody kept, you know, worshiping. The front porch tiles at Mount Vernon have all been replaced. They're not the ones that George Washington trod because the tourists wore them down. <laughs> but, you know, that's the question. Yeah. Preserve it in situ, but if you don't do anything to preserve it, as that It'll gentleman said, go. in another 20 years, on the coast of Carolina, it wouldn't take that long for it to go. Now that you're at Pennsylvania, can you still keep, teach your course on South Carolina? I have not explored that yet. When I met with the deans <laughs> before accepting the job, I said, you know, I teach this course and it's really great and I really love it. And they said, you can do anything you want. <laughs> I said, but I don't want to teach all summer. I don't want to teach a regular summer session. And they said, oh, you can do a shortened summer session. And so it's just my first year. I'm not calling that in yet, but. Well, I, I, I just will. would be very curious because I think probably most of the students you had at Chapel Hill were at least from the Southeast, maybe not all of them, but most of them. Most were from, well, most were from North Carolina. But I'd be very curious since Pennsylvania is a very diverse, mostly up east student body, how they would experience coming to South Carolina and doing what you did with your... your oh, I think it would be fantastic because there's a course that I taught at UNC and I taught it this past fall called it's African American History to 1865. And I think more so than at Carolina, for the first few weeks I, th I felt more as though I were performing than teaching. And some people say teaching is performance, mm -hmm. but because the students would just sit open mouthed. I mean, 
my students at Chapel Hill, I had a, a range of students. I mean, I had students from Singapore and France and, and lots of different places and different parts of the US. But many of them knew something about slavery more than what they had learned in fourth grade. And many of the students, I only had black and white students in this class and they're from all over the country. Everything was new to them. And at first it was disconcerting because I thought, how can everything be new? But then it just, you just step out there and you say, okay, I'm needed here, you know? <laughs> and they really took it in at Carolina for several years. I, we reenacted a trial, an 1855 trial, murder trial from Missouri called Celia v. State of Missouri, in which this young girl was 14 years old, was purchased by a man whose wife had died the year before, and he purchased her solely for sexual purposes. And they had at least two children together. She was pregnant. She, we think she was interested in a black man on the, on the farm. Anyway, he ends up dead and in the fireplace. And she ends up hanging for it. And so I have the handwritten transcripts from the Missouri court and we, the students get it. They have to decipher it. This is terrifying to students. <laughs> Each year it's more terrifying because students do not learn how to, to write anymore. <laughs> and so they, they cannot write cursive and they cannot read it. it. It's like Greek or Arabic to them. And so they have to, at first, a student came in after they'd had it for the weekend, and she said, Professor Williams, I, I can't read it. And I said, can you see it? And she said, yeah. I said, oh, okay, I just want to make sure there was no technical problem in the transmission, <laughs> but can you see it? And she said, yes. I said, well, then you'll be able to read it. You'll figure it out. And they have to decipher that. They have to figure out who's who. They get divided up as prosecutors and defense attorneys and judges. And these students took to it the same way that the UNC students took to it. And so I think that Charleston would be an amazing place for them. I gave a talk at my old school in Brooklyn last year now, yeah. And um, that's a school that goes from preschool up to high school. And I, I talked to the fourth graders about help me to find my people. And I purposely did this. I had two PowerPoint slides. And I showed them a letter. And it's actually a letter that I've copied over on a sentence from it on the cover of the book, but it's handwritten. And so these students were fantastic. I mean, I've never experienced this teaching a college class. You ask a question and every hand in the room was up. You know, every hand, every question, and they're just jumping out of their seats. And so I said, I want three volunteers, and they came up. And so I turned to this PowerPoint slide and they turned, they looked at me as though I had betrayed them. Because they, what is it? They don't know what to do with it. And they could not make heads or tails of it. And then I had transcribed it, so then I showed. But I begged them, I said, please, you've got to study this, learn this, because otherwise there's so much that's going to be lost to us. Well, I too used to use documents, and I finally discovered a, a use for Twitter. Um, I haven't. <laughs> well, no, it's, it's the fact that students use it as a language. 18th century folks use a lot of superscripts, and they usually omit vowels. Uh -huh. And I said, think in terms uh -huh. of how you have those, whatever it is, 42 characters. Or whatever. Uh -huh. And all of a sudden, it clicked. Okay. At least for some of them, it clicked. <laughs> <laughs> so, <laughs> anyway. Um, yeah. We've reached that point. Is there... You know, so that we'll have some closing comments. Any advice for folks on research? Because we, we have a lot of folks out here who are tracing their ancestry. I know a lot of people who are listening when this is broadcast will be, are tracing their ancestry. Mm -hmm. Well, I think my, my advice for that, rather than saying, here's where you can go to find material, because I think people are figuring that out, it's to say, think about the context. 
So instead of finding your great, great, great grandfather's name on a list and saying, I found great, great, try to find out something about the world in which he lived. You know, so when you're finding these people, whether they're in Ireland or they're in South Carolina, whether they're black, white, Asian, try to find something about their world so that you have some better sense of them, not just that you've they become another collector's item, you know, something that you that you own in a sense. I found them. I mean, that's important. That's really important to some people. But I think history is about helping us to understand those people's worlds to the degree that we can. Because I, the more I write, the more I realize that there's so much that I can never know, especially the kinds of things that I want to know about how people felt, how people thought, how people interacted on a personal level. You know, you can get a lot of the public, but when you try to go into a house, into a cabin, it, it, you get excluded, you know, you're not invited in there. But I think to the extent possible to just try to figure out something about their world. Okay. All right, Professor Heather Williams, I want to thank you for being with us this evening. Thank you. This is Walter Edgar, and I hope you enjoyed today's conversation on the Civil War, 1865, with Professor Heather Williams of the University of Pennsylvania. Join us next week for more of The Journal. Walter Edgar's Journal is a production of South Carolina ETV Radio. The producer and engineer is Alfred Turner. Production of this program is made possible in part by listener contributions to the ETV Endowment of South Carolina. The views and opinions expressed on Walter Edgar's journal are not necessarily those of South Carolina ETV Radio.